0: We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health.
1: Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Scott Guthrie, an neonatologist and the state project leader for the Tennessee Tiniest Babies Project and also the past infant medical director of TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to sit down and have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else where this podcast is being listened to. Today, we have Dr. Kathleen Gibbs joining me. I met her a couple of months ago at CHOP's Neonatology Conference, where I had the opportunity to speak on a few of the things I've been involved with. We immediately hit it off at dinner that night, right, Kate? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I learned about all the great things that you were doing to impact chronic lung disease, I knew we needed to get you on this podcast so you can tell us about all the things you've seen and had the experience to to do. So Dr. Gibbs is an associate professor of clinical pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's an attending neonatologist in the Division of Neonatology and she serves as the Medical Director of the Newborn and Infant Chronic Lung Disease Program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And in addition to all of this, she also serves as the Medical Director of Quality Improvement and Patient Safety of CHOPs NICUs. Welcome to our show today, Kate. You want to tell our audience hi real quick? Hi,
2: thanks so much for having me. This is such a great initiative you've got.
1: Well, thank you so much. So I want to take a minute just to Tell people what I hope that we get to learn from you today, specifically one of these projects that TIPQC has been involved with. We're getting ready to kick off our Reduction in Chronic Lung Disease project. This is the second bundle in the Tennessee's Tiniest Babies project, and our goal is to decrease chronic lung disease, and you're going to hear us go back and forth between using chronic lung disease and BPD or bronchopulmonary dysplasia on this podcast, we're hoping to decrease this by 25% in all our level three and four NICUs around the state. And then hopefully to reduce grade three BPD, that most severe form, by around 10%. So we put together a toolkit that will get everyone started on this project. But there are many subtleties of this toolkit that we can't always capture. And so when I, we were planning this toolkit, and I met Dr. Gibbs I said, hey, you've you got to sit down and, and give us some ideas, sort of your experience and analysis on things. We've also had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Rapali Bapat uh, from Nationwide Children's a couple, few months ago uh, to talk about some of the things that she's done. So, this podcast is going to go perfectly with that. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 75, I would highly encourage you to do that. That's so uh, worth a listen. So, Kate, you fine with me calling you that? Absolutely. All right. Hey, let's uh get to work on this. I want to hear more about your experience, more about what you've seen with the grade 2 and grade 3 BPD in the unit that you run there at Chop. And first off, I just want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your journey specifically as a neonatologist and uh, how you got some interest in uh, chronic lung disease.
2: Yes, thanks. So, I did my residency and fellowship at Mount Sinai in New York and then stayed there as faculty for 10 years came to CHOP in 2017, and so the newborn and infant chronic lung disease program had been created really back in 2010 by a number of the neonatologists, notably YN Zhang, really identifying that there was this cohort of patients in the unit that would benefit from a multidisciplinary care model and continuity for this uh, most severe form of the disease. About a year less than a year after I joined chop, Yan needed to move back to China mostly time, and so she now runs she's the division chief and running a fair amount of efforts in in Guangzhou and continuing to focus on BPD and she's remained the program director, so she comes back and does service a few times a year. and the program evolved from kind of a, a bit of a consult service into what it is now, which is a, a dedicated team. And so my goal as the medical director is, I've said this, is to not screw up what YN created because it truly is incredible. And I think my experience with severe BPD coming in the CHOP was, I think, of that of a typical neonatologist where, you know, you have mostly grade one and two BPD and a minority of infants are still intubated at 36 weeks. And so it, it has been fascinating to add on to that perspective and learn so much about the disease and the the program that YAN and, and others created here to, to care for this population of infants.
1: So where describe described to our audience like this unit. Is it a standalone unit? How many patients do you typically have in it? Where are these patients coming from? Things that you're seeing?
2: So it is a it's a medical team that's embedded within the larger NICU. The NICU itself is 100 beds, and we have um, about five medical teams, and then a surgical team. And so it is now one of the medical teams. So there are. Sixteen sometimes we'll go over to seventeen patients at a given time. Having said that, there are always other patients on other medical teams that are either waiting to come in, or we didn't have a spot on the team but needed to come in, or have been ingrown for some period of time to the point where we're, we're really looking to expand to about a team and a half and and cohort those patients on another one of the medical teams. Again, just recognizing the value that continuity of care has really to the care model and, uh, and the management of these patients. So they're split between two of the units that the CHOP unit started many years ago as a much smaller unit and has sort of grown over time. So it's a bit of a, a potpourri of, of unit structure and, and makeup from a mix of single patient rooms to pods. And so we split those patients between two of those subunits.
1: And then you're getting patients from—I would imagine—all over your region. So maybe babies that have been at other neonatal intensive care units—they've—they've maintained being stuck on a ventilator or whatnot, not able to be extubated, and they get sent to you, and you've got to work your magic and try to fix them, right?
2: Yes, yes. So we have a a large regional cohort of patients, and then we certainly do get patients from across the Mid Atlantic. We certainly have had national referrals, but. So many of these patients need to be in a medical home where they are discharged home on some degree of of technology, even those without a tracheostomy. So my preference, if I can, is to support patients elsewhere in the country from afar if the home institution can do that. But we Mm -hmm. currently have a patient that came from Baltimore. We have another one from New York. A number of our patients come within our our global newborn care network as well.
1: So your team already has years of experience in seeing a large volume of these babies, taking care of these babies. Tell me about some of the things specifically that you put into place in in this unit to help improve outcomes for kids with chronic lung disease.
2: I think the biggest benefit of our team has been, and it evolved over time. So when I, I speak to people that are wanting to create even just a core of BPD interested providers and not necessarily the size that we have. It's just a recognition that you can really grow this over time and you're not going to get to where we are overnight. It really took a number of years. But I I think this multidisciplinary care model that we have that is not only the physicians, but the nurses, the occupational and physical therapists, the respiratory therapists, pulmonology, pulmonary hypertension, I'm going to not include so many important people, our clinical pharmacists or social workers. And what we spend a fair amount of time doing is sharing the mental model of of caring for these patients in a chronic approach. So you have to shift almost your perspective as a neonatologist from the acute small baby approach of lots of weaning, lots of weaning, lots of blood gases to this is going to be a much longer haul. And our general philosophy of care that to support the whole baby means first providing adequate respiratory support. And so what is that? And sometimes that means going from non-invasive to a ventilator. But if you first support the lungs, then the other just as important elements that you're going to support are the heart, the neurodevelopment, and the overall somatic growth, which are all essential to ongoing improvement from this disease.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious. You've got this huge referral base that you're seeing patients come to you from. You probably like, picked up on some things or noticed some things that might predispose someone to developing chronic lung disease or BPD. And that's, that's one of the things I really want to sit down and explore with you about, because we've got all of our neonatal intensive care units around Tennessee, all 13 or 12 of our level three and four NICUs are participating in this project. And we've only got really Two major major referral centers we can send babies to when stuff like this comes up in its most severe form when we're dealing with that grade three BPP. So we're trying to prevent this from happening. <laughs> what are some things that you you have noticed that seems to predispose babies to developing this problem?
2: I think a very strong signal that we we certainly note and then reflect back on as as we get a patient in we spent a fair amount of time thinking about what is their phenotype of BPD. You know, it's SILTA, mm-hmm. such a heterogeneous disease that it's not, every, every patient is so different so that we individualize the care plan for each patient and their phenotype. And one of the things that we will remark upon really is were they growth restricted or not? Because of the growth restricted infants really are, I, I would say, higher risk for not only BPD in general but severe BPD and then the, the more significant complications, including things such as pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary venous obstructive disease. The data are certainly out there that even modest growth restriction can increase your risk for BPD- associated pulmonary hypertension. And so I think that subpopulation of infants is certainly one that's very
1: vulnerable. Let's explore that just a little bit more as far as the, the intrauterine growth restricted babies is there an approach that you would recommend like the, the smaller NICUs, your, your, your level three NICUs take when they see these babies that might help prevent the problem long-term? Are there some things that you've noticed with care that's, that's being done or could be done uh, to improve this, the care that they're receiving?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think nu- obviously nutritional support is one that we all, we all know is, is important and, and focus on. And particularly they the risk for extra uterine growth failure in the premature population in general that is even more challenging in the already growth-restricted population. The other signal that we see that I think these kids are also more vulnerable for is this concept of what we call under-support for a period Mm -hmm. of time. And so we as neonatologists see ongoing mechanical ventilation as a failure, right? Our goal is to either never intubate them or get them extubated as soon as possible, but that we do sometimes see that comes at the consequence of infants who are on very high levels of non-invasive support very high oxygen not tolerating cares frequent desaturations and growth failure who then come to us and are are honestly much worse off and would they be different if they had stayed intubated longer we we don't know because we have our ends of one for that patient but it is a pattern that we see where we see these infants coming in who have been not intubated, but on very high levels of CPAP or NIMVI or BIPAP or whatever you want to call it, and you know, 60, 70, 80% oxygen, and they end up coming to us because their RV has started to fail. Mm-hmm. And then you need to intubate them or the RV will fail. But sometimes they have a really hard time afterwards. And if I have a baby coming in, I you know, I know they're gonna to need to be intubated, but unless I'm bringing them in immediately, I often don't say intubate them now because the next 24 to 48 hours, they not universally, but fairly predictably do what I call falling off the BPD cliff. Whereas they've been mm. kind of peering over it for a period of time and then intubating them, whether it just riles things up or what, it, they really just then have this pattern of of then being on 100% oxygen and, and quite ill and needing to be muscle relaxed, et cetera.
1: Yeah, so I think... Exploring sort of what's happened out in the other NICUs and trying to prevent this. I mean, that's that sounds a bit more. I know there's there's, there's a paucity of literature <laughs> on the ends of one that we experience, but that that really is, I guess, more where sort of the art of medicine comes into, isn't it? And your experience and you into in your intuition about things. But hearing you talk about the the oxygen requirements, maybe that's one of the things like we could be paying attention to a little bit more. I mean, I, I, I hope everybody agrees that trying to avoid mechanical ventilation in the right patient and optimizing your non-invasive ventilatory support is is the best care, but there's a point that we've got to realize maybe we are doing some harm when our FIO2 goes above a certain level. Do you have any feeling about what that might be? Now you mentioned, I think, 60 70% earlier. Have you had an opportunity to, like, through? do some chart reviews or some retrospective stuff to try to identify what's happening to these babies out and where they get transported to you?
2: No, nothing formal. And some of that is we're limited on the amount of data that we get from the prior hospital course. I will Uh say that when you have established BPD and you're well-supported, and we say well-supported, that's looking at not only things like work of breathing, respiratory rate, tolerance of cares. Um, reserve with the interface off, as well as can. What happens when they actually need to do activity? When you sit them up, if they do any activity, are they really huffing and puffing? But FiO2, I would say, when they're well supported, is generally in the twenties and thirties. If you're getting yeah. upwards of forty-five, fifty percent oxygen, we're we're starting to think: are Are we really well supported? Is there something else going on? Because I would say that's pretty unusual.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and certainly a sign if you're gonna. Try to optimize your you NIPPV know, in a, in a to turn the pressures up a little bit before maybe you revert straight back to intubation and, and mechanical ventilation. And so speaking of that, are you seeing any signal with like extubation attempts and like failed attempts at, at extubation that might uh, preclude a increased risk of BPD and, and what's happening to these babies at the outside facilities?
2: So actually, Eric Jensen published this, you know, I think it was a a small number. It wasn't an NRN level. I believe it was our data that would imply, no, that obviously the longer duration of mechanical ventilation increases your risk and risk for other poor outcomes, but that attempting is okay. But I think what isn't in that and I think deserves additional attention is what is your steroid exposure during those? Because Certainly, again, we're getting the, the patients on the other end of it, but we absolutely see a pattern where it's trying to get extubated, use steroids, they fail, they reintubate them. Less than a week later, you're on steroids again, you try, you fail, and rinse, lather, repeat. And then they're coming to us mm-hmm. being steroid exposed. Now the steroids certainly have contributed probably to growth failure in addition to, to the under support. And then they're just not in an optimal place.
1: Okay that's good information to know. And certainly there's been a lot over the past year or two about this steroid exposure and which type of steroid and how long and and things of that nature. We have made some some recommendations about that in our toolkit. I'm sure we'll continue to have conversations about that. And in the state as this gets uh, rolled out, so how specifically have you used some of the principles of quality improvement in your chronic lung disease program? And then what have you seen happen with it?
2: And so this is for infants with, with established BPD, and we know that in terms of outcomes, they're at very high risk, if not universal, for neurodevelopmental delays and, and ongoing impairment. And so our work has been to some degree to optimize their neurodevelopmental care. So for example, something called early progressive mobility, which gets them up and out of bed because if they're just lying there in bed, either on their back or ideally sometimes prone, it's fascinating. You can see the amount of scapular retraction that they get, just like if I'm in bed for way too long post-call and I get up and I'm so stiff, so are these babies. But then that impacts their respiratory mechanics. And so we had a quality improvement initiative to improve and increase the percent of infants that were participating in, in early progressive mobility. We are, another challenge that we get is so our infants get either occupational or physical therapy up until 52 weeks corrected, and then they get both. And, and they'll have those, those sessions generally twice a week for each therapist. One of the challenges that we get, particularly because it happens to us too, where we're under supporting a baby, is the baby either just sleeps all the time or, or when they have activity, they don't tolerate it, they, they have issues with state transition. And so the therapist will get sent away. You know, the baby is sleeping or the baby has been really cranky. Now is not a good time. But we use therapy input as an assessment of our adequacy of respiratory support, as well as for neurodevelopmental care. So we're just kicking off a project now to reduce the percentage of what we call deferred therapy sessions. Because really, it's, it is very much a, a judgment call on, the, on behalf of the bedside nurse but then part of them is having them understand the, the whys behind the deferral because sometimes it's, it's absolutely appropriate. And then the other challenge, particularly in a subpopulation where it's hard to then move outcomes when the outcomes to measure are gonna be so far down the line or you know are, are going to be hard to move is then in reducing waste. And so we are winding down, we'll move into Sustained soon, a project to reduce unnecessary inhaled therapies and so certainly inhaled therapies are commonly used intervention in this population. Hypertonic saline is something that's sort of a chopism, but, you know, albuterol, atrovent. I mean, anytime you're using an inhaled therapy, you're disconnecting the ventilator, you're bothering the infant. And so we've had a significant reduction in what we call unnecessary or excessive inhaled therapies, which has been a really fun project.
1: Yeah, that's great. Both of those are wonderful. I tell you one thing, uh, my physical therapist would absolutely eat up the progressive mobility program uh, because they're they're all over working with these babies and preventing the scapular retractions and things of that nature that cause those problems. So, uh you've got a ton of experience in in quality improvement and I did get a chance to share with you the toolkit that we've come up with for chronic lung disease. So, I've got to pick your brain a little bit about that. Is there anything you felt we left out?
2: Honestly, no. I mean, i it's really comprehensive. I think it's fantastic. I, Eric Jensen and I joke like we, we have job security because really who's preventing BPD joke. But We're I- we trying I, to in Tennessee. And I, I do actually, and I, I applaud you for taking it on. And I do actually think we joke that because I think for grade three BPD to some degree, it's gonna be hard to move that needle. So I think 10% is a very, is a, a good- Goal, and then I think that the needle for grade one and two can be moved, and really it's it's optimizing care of of the whole tiny infant, which you're we're really doing very nicely, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, we uh, of course pulled our Vermont Oxford network data, and tipqc has got their own little section that we can access it. So we we're looking at where TIPQC is in relation to the Vermont Oxford chronic lung mm-hmm. disease data. Let's just say if we drop it by. Twenty percent will be average, which is uh, which is a great goal in Tennessee. I mean, if we can be average in some of our our markers, we'll be right up there with uh, some of the top performing states by by getting average or coming close to average, I think we'll be we'll be doing okay. Uh, you think we can pull this off?
2: I do. I do. I think with what you have. You know, with what you've laid out and what sounds like a really engaged collaborative, I think that's the key is there's so much that you can learn from one each other when you have an engaged collaborative when I was in New York, I was a part of the New York State perinatal collaborative, and we really as a as a collective group and learning from each other that I'll teach I'll learn improved outcomes across the state, collapsy prevention being one of the notable ones and I really enjoyed that time, so I do think that that is the way particularly a- across the state to move. You're doing it also in a way, I think, thinking about your patient populations and where are their similarities. I think, you know, where are the modifiable factors, for example, of not only the NICU care, are there opportunities for social determinants of health? That is obviously a much a much bigger lift. But I, I do think you can do it.
1: I have faith in you. All right. Appreciate your uh, your your faith. We'll find out in 2027. Yes, we I, can't wait. I can't wait. It'll <laughs> be about time for me to retire then, maybe. I, I don't know. One other question, one final one before I, I wrap it up with the way we typically wrap it up, which is, is my favorite question to ask. But any advice that you would give us specifically as we get ready to roll out the chronic lung disease program out or continue to work within this Tennessee's Tiniest Babies project? I always like to pick people's brains and get advice, and figure out how we can do things better and how we can continue to improve?
2: I would say that, again, from your toolkit, it's so comprehensive and you've got clearly a great collaborative. And perhaps thinking through your balancing measures and what are some of either the unintended consequences hmm. or as we all seek to perform well and, and perhaps are looking to reduce grade three BPD maybe a baby has grade two BPD, but they're under-supported and they're intubated with severe pulmonary hypertension two weeks mm-hmm. to a month later. So I think thinking through perhaps that, that element of desired performance versus meeting the definition, but perhaps you're under And I think thinking through, for example, FiO2 as a measure certainly may be a valuable one.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's, that's one of the things I've gotten from this conversation. Maybe we need to go back and, and contemplate slightly more about our balancing measures, or at least in our in our learning sessions and huddle groups as we get this started. Make sure people are, are paying attention to that, because uh, we don't want to have unintended consequences. That's, that's for certain. And getting some of these things correct and, and nailing it perfectly with quality improvement can sometimes be a hard thing. All right. So here's my favorite question. I always end every podcast with this and this is your opportunity to spread some love and share some knowledge and with uh, everybody in Philadelphia or we can throw this in Nashville or Memphis or somewhere around our our state as well but if you were given the opportunity to put up anything that you wanted on a big billboard there in uh, in Philly or like I said somewhere in Tennessee sharing some words of wisdom or something about this project or something you just want the world to know, what would you say?
2: Well, that's good. I would say, and when I give talks that are for the global general pediatrics BPD care, when I do introductory family meetings, and this is for for established BPD, and so one of the titles that I've had for this kind of a talk is that mechanical ventilation isn't always a failure, but cigarette smoke exposure is. And that's not only cigarette smoke exposure as these infants are growing, but also when they're going to be young adolescents or adults. So I say to families, if there's anyone that's smoking, let's get you help quitting now. And they can never smoke because we know that we as adults have normal lung-related decline in their overall lung health. And that for most people, you're not even going to notice that by the time death occurs at your normal life expectancy. But if you're, you know, if you are a smoker, but you're born on time, you've got then accelerated age-related decline. But if you're born prematurely and you're starting off with abnormal lung growth, and then you have accelerated decline, either from second degree, their um, secondary smoke exposure, or your own smoke exposure. We may be looking at people who are infants who have grade three BPD, who are at fifty years old, seeing um, really symptoms of, of emphysema. Potentially, we just don't know because they haven't been alive long enough. But I think that the ongoing lung health of this population, even though. Yes, they become liberated from oxygen. They become liberated from mechanical ventilation. What happens to them in their young adulthood and beyond is something that we just don't know yet, but Hmm. deserves further attention. But definitely cigarette smoke is worse
1: than mechanical ventilation, in in my view. That's, That's what the billboard will say. Cigarette smoke is worse than mechanical. I love it. And you touched on epigenetics and that that I think is just an absolutely fascinating field of like what are these babies being pre-programmed for that we have no clue yet because neonatology and certainly what we've been doing over the past few years has not been done before. So that's that's a whole area of expertise and research and a field for somebody to go into in a in a few years. I so much appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to sit down with us and share your wisdom and thoughts uh, about chronic lung disease as we get ready to kick this program off. We have, for those of you who are listening to this in Tennessee, we do have our pilot program up and running currently. Uh, We will be kicking this off officially at the annual TQC meeting at the end of March. And so as you're listening to this, and if it's uh, not time for the meeting yet, we hope you will join us if you live and work in uh, Tennessee. And uh, then for all of our Level 3 and 4 hospitals that are listening, this project will be going live for everyone in the summer as we continue on with the Tennessee's Tiniest Babies Project. So thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T I P Q C.org, and click on Podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team.